0: This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Good morning and welcome to The Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. For a couple of days in a row now, India has reported less than 1 lakh COVID-19 cases in a day, with recoveries outnumbering daily cases. Our vaccine program, however, continues to remain sluggish with only 3.4% of the population fully vaccinated and 14.1% having received one dose. A lot has been said about the Delta variant being responsible for the second wave that ravaged the country, and a lot of questions remain about the effectiveness of vaccines against virus mutations. Since December 2019, what have we learned about our body's response to SARS-CoV-2? Is it possible for the new virus to keep mutating and developing immune escape properties? There's a mix and match strategy of using two different vaccines on a person's work. And could we have done better to ensure vaccine equity, especially at a time when supplies seem to be running short? To talk to us about these issues, we have with us today Dr. Satyajit Rath, a professor, at the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research, Pune. Good evening, Dr. Satya Jitrat, and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast.
0: Hi, glad to be here.
1: Dr. India's second wave and its ferocity was built on the back of the Delta variant. Studies have shown that it is more transmissible and may have immune escape properties. What does this mean? And so far, what do we know about the effectiveness of vaccines against
0: it? So let me make three quick points. Firstly, India hasn't had a second wave that that is uniformly of this, that or the other kind. India has had a large number of local outbreaks in different parts of the country. And to a variable degree, those outbreaks... Have been associated with variants, but all of those variants are neither necessarily the total cause of the outbreaks nor are they even the same variants. So, in parts of the country, the Delta variant has indeed been um, involved, uh, the so called B1617 virus lineage, but in other parts of the country, B117 has been involved. In other parts of the country, other um, variations seem to be involved. Our evidence and data so far are a little too patchy for us to make very definite conclusions about this. That's the first point. So are the variants uh, probably a contribution to our explosive numbers nationwide over the past couple of months? Yes. Do we know exactly what role they have played and to what extent? No secondly we have we have some evidence from uh, a variety of sources that is indirect that the transmissibility of this particular variant the so-called delta variant b1617 lineage is higher than the virus strains of last year Um, however that evidence is indirect And therefore, putting a hard number on just how much more transmissible it is, is, um, I think, a little adventurous and excessive. Is it likely to be a third more transmissible, one and a half times more transmissible? Sure, but all of this is still very uncertain information. So all we know is that it's likely to be a little more transmissible, but exactly how much is still unclear. It's not surprising from an evolutionary biology point of view that as the world over, we have been physically distancing in response to the pandemic. And therefore, what we've done is put pressure on the virus population because we've reduced the effectiveness of their transmission of the virus. And as a result, variants that have selectively survived in the face of our physical distancing, are variants that are a uh, little more transmissible. Is this variance uh, also an immune escape variant? The information about that is even less clear. Certainly, the uh, variant has modifications in the spike protein, but those modifications are much more likely to have been selected for better transmission rather than for immune escape. So the fact that some monoclonal antibodies, for example, don't prevent transmission of this this variant um, is likely to be a side effect in a sense, rather than the main driver of the variant selection. I suspect that we haven't as yet met the real immune escape variants, because we just haven't vaccinated as widely as all that. All of these uncertainties pointed out and underlined, the recent uh, evidence collected from the United Kingdom, where this particular Delta variant, the B1617 lineage, has been spreading, indicates that while protection against it with one dose of Covishield is modest, Protection with two doses of Covishield is quite robust. We should keep in mind that this protection is um, against moderate to severe infections. Protection against death or hospitalization for intensive care, typically with most vaccines, is much better. And I don't expect this to be any different. So, Do our current vaccines show a reasonable chance of providing respectable protection against the Delta variant? The answer is yes.
1: Doctor, since it was first reported in Wuhan in December 2019, what have we learned about the immune response of our bodies to SARS-CoV-2 and its impact on mortality? Will numbers like infection-fatality ratio eventually be more or less the same across the world? Or will strong public health systems in some countries skew that number?
0: So what we have learned is that this particular member of the coronavirus family is not as lethal as its cousins that we have met in earlier during this century. Um, we met its cousin SARS-CoV-1, the causative agent of the disease SARS, almost 20 years ago. We met another uh, coronavirus cousin of theirs, Merskov, cov which cause, causes the disease MERS, about 10 years ago. And both of those earlier viruses were much more lethal. They killed one or two people out of every five infected. The present virus kills maybe one person out of every 100 infected. This has been true ever since the pandemic began in, uh, towards the end of 2019. This has been true all through last year. And this year too, with this year's variants and strains, as far as I know, the current evidence indicates that this continues to be true. So that's the first thing we have learned, that its infection fatality rate is not dramatically altering. This is not to say that there won't be small shifts of infection fatality rate, but none of those is dramatic, especially in the background and context of the 20-year-old or the 10-year-old experiences with coronavirus family members we have. That's one point. The second point is that despite the fact that coronaviruses do have strategies for immune evasion, Infection with this virus seems to generate quite reasonable and respectable immune responses, both antibody responses and T-lymphocyte responses. And those responses, while they show quite unsurprisingly variability between people, there are people who have somewhat lower responses, there are people who have somewhat more transient responses, but by and large, the trend seems to be for respectable immune responses that last for months, if not years. That's the second thing we've learned. The third thing we have learned is that this virus causes, in the majority of people it infects, a sort of limited respiratory infection with mild, at most moderate, Uh, symptoms actually in a lot of people no symptoms at all very much and that it grows in the respiratory tract it's shed out with uh, um, speaking talking coughing sneezing but after a few days the virus is cleared by the immune response and we recover and we have an immune response. In a small proportion of people anything between 10 to 15%, perhaps, although these numbers are still hard to uh, pin down with any accuracy, we see much more severe symptoms and in a small proportion of those, we see extraordinarily severe uh, body-wide loss of organ function and uh, death. What we have not as yet learned, and I think it's as important for us to uh, acknowledge what we have not learned as much as to acknowledge what we have learned, what we have not learned so far is what is actually different in terms of the mechanisms involved between people who get very severely ill, land up in intensive care and may even die as far as the immune response to this virus is concerned, versus the bulk of people infected who recover uh, with varying amounts of symptoms, with varying durations of symptoms. We know um, the common word that uh, everybody is now familiar with, that comorbidities predispose to severe illness and death. Um, Age is one comorbidity, type 2 diabetes is another comorbidity, um, substantial, very high levels of obesity is another comorbidity that predisposes to this. But even with these predispositions, it still remains a fact that the majority, certainly more than not just half, two-thirds or three-fourths of people with that comorbidity recover with only mild illness. So we haven't understood what is different. And in fact, to make that last point uh, uh, a little underlined, we haven't even quite understood what the mechanism-related connection is between these comorbidities and the tendency to get severe uh, illness um, and death. So those are the things that we know and those are the things we don't know at the moment about this disease.
1: Doctor, since the vaccination drive has started, terms like antibody-dependent enhancement, anti-spike antibody, and neutralizing antibodies are all being used in the context of vaccines and their effectiveness. Some fully vaccinated people have reported not showing any antibodies. There is confusion on the right dosage intervals and how long the protection will last, especially with variants in play. Could you clear this up a little for our listeners?
0: So here's how vaccination works. The vaccine is really just a mimic of the original infectious agent. So you take either the whole virus as with Covaxin or a part of the virus, namely its spike protein as with the Covishield design, and you inject that into the body. Essentially, you're fooling the body by saying, here is something dangerous that you need to respond to. It's really not dangerous because you have inactivated the whole virus uh, in the covaccine design, or you are putting in a carrier virus that's quite uh, safe and non-dangerous as with the CoviShield design, but your immune system is sufficiently stimulated to start making antibodies. Now, here's something that it's important to remember. We are all talking about protection By using neutralizing antibodies. Neutralizing antibodies are directed inevitably against that part of the viral spike protein, which helps the virus stick to cells. So if you can cover the bit of the protein that sticks to cells, then the protein won't be able to stick to cells. If the protein can't stick to cells, then the virus cannot get into cells. And therefore, you are preventing infection at the very earliest time point possible. So neutralizing antibodies are a very attractive modality of protection, a very attractive uh, pathway of protection. And that's what we've been looking at. But all vaccines also generate other antibodies. Other antibodies that, as you pointed out, are um, not considered neutralizing antibodies simply because they don't cover that part of the virus, which is important for it sticking to cells. But that may have other effects. And in the case of shield, for example, uh, they are antibodies against the spike protein, other, other regions, other parts of the spike protein. But in the case of Covaxin, they are antibodies against actually other proteins since Covaxin is a whole virus particle being used for immunization. Whether any of these antibodies provide some modest but significant amount of use in giving us protection or not is not yet clear. The one thing we know is that the worry about antibody dependent enhancement of disease seems so far not to have come true neither in the preclinical animal model studies of all vaccines nor in any of the actual real-life clinical trials as well as the clinical usage rollout. So antibody-dependent enhancement of disease does not at the moment seem to be a significant worry. On the other hand, We should also remember that all of these vaccine platforms also provide immune stimulation in the T-lymphocyte compartment. And that immune stimulation is both important for making long-lasting antibody responses, but also in providing other immune mechanisms such as providing enhanced abilities to cause immune inflammation locally and therefore to contain viral infections and to kill virus-infected cells and therefore to limit virus infection. Again, we think that all of these have a role to play in providing immune protection. Just how much of a role is much less understood in large part because these responses are much harder to measure in people and much harder, therefore, to correlate with protection. With all this said, what we have as information, therefore, is primarily based on antibody responses, which I underline are only one part of the immune response mechanisms that are triggered by all vaccines. Um, there are differences between the vaccines, but uh, T cell responses are triggered by all vaccines. What we are looking for with vaccines is this majority shift. As a result, The general tendency now is we are unlikely to need boosters in anything less than one year. The question is, is a booster going to be necessary for um, variants? We don't know yet. But the information available is that um, the current boosters, the so-called Delta variant boosters, um, the the current variants, the so-called Delta variants, are reasonably well protected against by the current vaccines and therefore I suspect that what we are going to start seeing is a pattern where for the first year pretty much nobody needs a booster. The question of are we over anxious about do I have good antibody responses and I'm afraid the answer is yes. Let me point out things we don't know. We don't know how much antibody level is required for efficient protection? We really don't. So the so-called antibody test that is used has a zero positivity limit at one of the tests that is being used currently, that is currently in the news uses a zero positivity cutoff of fifteen arbitrary units per ml of serum. And keep in mind this phrase, arbitrary units. They are arbitrary units, and that zero positivity is not a guarantee that you're protected. In fact, it has nothing to do with protection and everything to do with the technical limitations of the test. So, we really don't know how much antibodies we require in order to be protected. You would think that this is basic information, but in fact, this is extremely hard evidence to come by in real life situations. And therefore, I think all of us need to come down a little, get vaccinated, and keep in mind that vaccine protection is not guaranteed. Vaccines reduce the chances of getting severe infection, illness, and death. Vaccines also, to a lesser degree, reduce the chances of getting moderate um, infection. But vaccines are not ironclad guarantees. They're not um, uh, impenetrable armor against disease. And therefore, that we are vaccinated does not mean that we can simply stop worrying individually about the disease. Vaccination is about reducing the chances of getting infection. They certainly dramatically reduce the chances of getting uh, uh, into intensive care or dying. But they're not guarantees. And therefore, the occasional example we hear is not unusual or out of the way or sadly unexpected. And therefore, we need to continue to do all the physical distancing measures, the not getting into crowds, the maintaining distances, the wearing masks uh, and so on and so forth that are advisable with or without vaccination.
1: Doctor, you told us about how vaccines target the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, the part of the virus that binds to human cells. We have the world's largest mass vaccination program right now targeting that specific part of the virus. What kind of evolutionary pressure does this put on the virus? Does it mutate because of this?
0: Well, let me make two points. Firstly, the Covaxin platform actually as i just said a while back generates antibodies and t-cell responses against many parts of sars-cov-2 the uh, virus what we are measuring as neutralizing antibodies are against uh, the spike protein but there are antibodies and t-cell responses against many other parts of the virus we just don't know for sure how much of and what role they play in providing protection number one Number two, a very substantial proportion of our population has been infected by the virus itself. And that has generated an even greater diversity of immune responses against all parts of the virus. Number three, the vaccines that we are mostly using, it is true, are directed against the spike protein of the virus. And those are um, the Covishield platform. But even the Covishield platform is actually generating immune responses against spike protein, but not just antibody responses, but also CD8 cytotoxic T-cell responses. And those are quite capable in principle of adding to immune protection. Um, We just don't know how much addition they have. All that said, the thrust of your question is, do we expect this kind of immune experiencing in the host population to begin to reshape the landscape of the virus population? And the answer is yes. As I pointed out, what we have done over the last year, for example, is the world over, we have been using physical distancing. And since we've been using physical distancing, we've made it for the virus population harder for the virus population to be transmitted, which means we have put natural selection pressure on the virus population by making it harder and harder for it to be transmitted. And what has resulted is variants that are more transmissible have been successful in transmitting themselves and are therefore becoming the prominent strains across the world. The more transmissible characteristic is a shared characteristic of independently emerging variants across the world this when we've been using physical distancing over the next year or so as more and more of the world becomes infected and or immunized what the virus population is going to be faced with is a host population that is virus experienced to a variable extent rather than completely virus knife. And what is likely to result from that is going to be more and more virus variants that are somewhat resistant to immune pressure, at least to the extent that they can grow a little bit and transmit. There are three points that we should remember in this context. Number one Because of the multiplicity of immune responses that I have just described, it's going to be quite hard for the uh, virus population to come up with truly dramatically immune or vaccine resistant variants. It's not going to be impossible, but it's going to be harder simply because the virus is going to the the, the virus evolution must be against many um, target immune mechanisms. Secondly. In order for variants to be generated, there needs to be a very large virus population in which, in which pre-existing variants exist and can be selected. In the physical distancing, this has clearly been the case. If we had managed a global, equitable, public interest vaccination po- policy, such as a truly robust WHO co initiative, then we would have seen that the world over we would have steadily vaccinated and in all communities we would have reduced the proportion of unvaccinated people at roughly the same rate we would have brought down transmission rates at roughly the same rate we would have controlled virus populations across the world in synchrony and therefore the number of Viruses, the virus population from which immune resistant variants can be generated would have come down dramatically if equitable vaccination policies had been put in place. Since that has quite sadly and clearly not happened and is not showing any evidence of happening anytime soon, it is likely that what we will be uh, faced with by next year is the prospect of human populations that are largely vaccinated, living cheek by jowl with human populations that are not yet vaccinated and in whom the virus is spreading and growing and therefore has a fair amount of virus diversity available from which immune escape variants can quite conceivably be generated. So do I foresee that we might see Vaccine and immune uh, resistant variants in the future? Yes. Am I terribly worried about them um, in terms of their causing major flare-ups and major pan- pandemic outbursts? That's less likely because the world is slowly putting monitoring se- systems in place because the world is... However, uncertainly, steadily putting in place um, uh, efforts for making next generation vaccines. And because with influenza, we actually have an example of how to do this successfully. With influenza, we have a worldwide system of monitoring the new strains of influenza that emerge We have a system of evaluating those strains, we have a system of making decisions about making new vaccines against these strains for influenza, of manufacturing those vaccines and of putting them into people and marketplaces in real time.
1: Doctor, early research has shown that a mix of mRNA and adenovirus vector-based vaccines like Pfizer and AstraZeneca provide a good immune response. What do you think the impact of a mixed vaccine regimen will be?
0: So, um, again, we have no idea because we don't know. And the reason we haven't, over this past year, done parallel or overlapping clinical trials, short, quick, small clinical trials that would have provided evidence about the consequences of such mix-and-match or crossover approaches is that we have allowed our public good uh, COVID vaccination program to be channeled through for-profit, private sector pharma companies, which are doing this for profit. And therefore, they're competing with each other. And therefore, they are unlikely to be terribly enthusiastically willing to put their vaccines in, in, in comparison with each other, in crossover with each other, in competition with each other. It's only now over these past recent weeks and months that as public pressure has built, these kinds of studies have started. That said, that's an explanation for why we don't already have information um, of a reliable kind on the basis of which to make public policy decisions about mix and match approaches to vaccine strategies. On the other hand, speaking immunologically, do I expect that uh, mix-and-match protocols will give us uh, quite respectable results. And my guess is, guess in the absence of evidence, please keep in mind, but that said, my guess is that they will work quite well. Because as I keep saying, immune responses of this kind are fairly robust and, uh, um, shall we say, plastic. They will take these as booster doses and they will mount enhanced immune responses and therefore I expect there to be a respectable effect from these crossover studies. Um, That said let's keep in mind that different platforms the mRNA vaccine, the um, DNA vaccine, the adenovirus vaccine, the protein subunit vaccine, the whole virus inactivated vaccine, all of these are different platform technologies for vaccine delivery and each of them has its own uh, strengths and its own limitations. I don't think at this point we are in any uh, situation to begin to say oh this technology is better than that technology. In fact I think it's, it's a good thing that we have a diverse portfolio of vaccine platform technologies and a diverse portfolio therefore of vaccines with which to respond to the virus worldwide, both in terms of vaccinating people as well as in terms of doing vaccine mix and match strategies of the kind that you ask about.
1: Thank you so much for speaking to us, doctor.
0: Thank you very much. In Focus, we'll be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify